welcome new listeners and returning listeners to Creator Talks, the comic book creator interview show with writers and artists. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Now, I know this week I had said I was going to have Chris Flick on the show. I'm going to hold off on that one for a few weeks and have Chris's interview round out the month of August for us. The reason is August has turned out to be a very busy month. I've had a lot of interviews come up to be scheduled and a lot of books coming up soon, either for release or for final order cutoff through Diamond Comics catalog. And so, as I have from time to time, I've had to move certain interviews up in queue for you to listen to and find out about their books and their work. So my guest today is Sean Lewis. He has work coming out through Image Comics called Coyotes. The book's first four chapters came out already, and now the fifth chapter's coming out this month, August 15th. And once again, Caitlin Yarsky is handling the art on the series. So I'm going to talk with Sean about his influences for the book, who the directors were that gave him the most inspiration to create this horror tale, also about working with Caitlin, how her work has changed and evolved since the series' inception. Sean has tremendous output as a writer. He just wrapped up his series, Betrothed, published through Aftershock Comics, and has another one in the works right now, Clan Colors, also through Aftershock Comics. And he's working on another book right now with his former collaborator Hayden Sherman for a book to be published through Image Comics. But before we get into all that, Sean just wrapped up San Diego Comic-Con and just moved And that's where we start our conversation, here now on Creator Talks. Sean, welcome to Creator Talks. Thanks for having me. I will apologize ahead of time. My son is going down for his nap, so you might hear him a couple of times from the upstairs calling down that's funny because my son just went down for his nap so hopefully he'll sleep through it (laughs) so i understand you just went through a move i did from uh, iowa city to albany new york oh wow you had a haul there yeah 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 for sure so how long did that take for you to get everything out and moved over i mean it took about two days with a toddler it's about a 16 to 17 hour drive Ooh. oh man I feel your pain. Yeah, it's been a long week, for sure. It was basically get back from San Diego Comic-Con, get into a moving truck, and go. Jeez, San Diego, the biggest con of the year, and then you had to do that? (laughs) You must be exhausted. Definitely tired, yes. Well, we'll get down to business then. Glad to have you on to talk about your series, Coyotes. The genesis of your horror fantasy story was inspired by the real horror of women being abducted. And please share with me some of the stories that your wife told you about the Trail of Tears, the myth of the blonde in Juarez, Mexico, and how those led to writing a story, a horror story like Coyotes. First one was definitely the the idea of the myth of the blonde. I guess it's not really a myth. I mean, it's a documented story. So I had done some work for This American Life, and so I'm a big fan of it. And I was listening to some episodes at one point. They had a specific story about women that were going missing along a bus route in Juarez, and there was a woman that in the town people were talking about that wore a blonde wig and she was staying on the bus routes and executing bus drivers because she assumed that they must know what was happening to the women that were missing on this route, that either they were doing it or they were complicit. And I got kind of fascinated by that idea. And then my wife is Canadian and for years she's talked to me about the Trail of Tears in Canada where Inuit women have gone missing and it just kind of made me think a lot about that as a fear. You know, as a man, I don't think I ever have a fear that I'm going to just be 
picked up off the road and not see my family again and just how kind of shocking it is when you realize that for a lot of women if not most or all women that there is a a part of that in their brain at all times and it's a really powerless feeling because you're just kind of I think when you're hit with it as a as a man and the privileges that we have and the the safety that we assume it just kind of makes you go like oh the world isn't solely my experience and if it's not and I can't protect the people around me from feeling safe then what can I do I mean for me a lot of times that's when the writing happens and you just try and work out thoughts and fears on the paper and with comic books you know it's a great place where you can kind of create new myths and you can kind of really go far in exploring your thoughts and obsessions and fears around the same subject matter and what you've created here with this story there's a lot of things in play it's a town that you've created where hunted by werewolves women go missing and there are these scientists that have engineered werewolves by having men don pelts from an ancient werewolf that augments the men's innate desires. And there's this group of women wielding katanas that have banded together to lop off the heads of these werewolves. The battle between the women and their werewolves has apparently been occurring for centuries. Now, this is part of the myth-building and myth-making of this city of lost girls. Tell me, are we going to see more of that history that battle that's been ongoing for the centuries in the next arc of your series, Coyotes. Yeah, the second arc is actually all about the history. It gets all into the the beginnings of the wolves and of Gaia, the earth goddess, who the, the women in this world are, are all basically descendants of. Um, and so it focuses basically on that now that the in, at the end of the first arc, not to ruin it for people, the, the, um, the war profiteers, the scientists that are capitalizing on these pelts are kind of pushed out so that we get back to what was the original fundamental war between the men, uh, between the women and the and the wolves. I, I, I obviously like things that have levels of complication in them. Just hearing you do the elevator pitch of it, I'm like, oh, this, this would have to be a long elevator ride. It, it plays into the things that I'm really fascinated by, like the intersectionality of cultures so that you have, you know, the women are of all different races and the use of katanas, but also of muchalas and, and other kind of weaponry that comes from all over. The pelts all come from accounts that I read about men who were tried as werewolves in like the 16th and 17th century, who would claim that they committed murders because they had put on a mystical werewolf pelt and had transformed into werewolves. And even those just came from a very basic idea i had been reading about coyotes that bring people across borders and the thing that i was really interested in was like what happens if you exploded that word if you took the concept of a coyote even further um you know because often coyotes who we know as people who transport people across borders are somewhat predatory so i was like well what if they were real predators what if they were actual coyotes and or werewolves and so it just kept kind of building out of those kind of ideas. But in the second arc, yeah, we get into a world where the women have actually started to cleanse their area of these wolves and they feel like they're safe. They've, they've cleaned out the coyotes, the men who are wearing the pelts. But what ends up happening during that period of time is that the ancient wolves that the hair and the pelts are made from, they kind of come back together to ignite this war on a whole new level. I read you once said that the monsters in the story are not just the coyotes, the werewolves, that it's the world itself. Beyond the wolves and the, the coyotes, what is the other threat and horror 
that makes up this world? Well, I think that's a theme that's in a lot of the comics that I write. I think now that I have a young son, I think about why I do certain things or are drawn to certain things. And I think the world scares me in general. No matter what the politics of people are, I, I find as I'm getting older that people, it sometimes feels like the world is um, moving way faster than people can keep up with it, which has levels of danger of its own. A level of narcissism and a lack of compassion and forgiveness that I find really frightening. And so I think that gets funneled into this, that you have a world where if you have an entire area where women are going missing, that means you have other areas where they're not, which then means that there are people out there who don't actually care that this issue, that this problem is happening, which then becomes a whole thing for them to fight against anyway. I mean, you mentioned the, the scientists who come down and are working on these pelts in the first arc. Part of the reason they're able to do that is that they look at the city of lost girls as a place that no one cares about. So that if they want to test a weapon there, they can do it and women can disappear and no one will ever bat an eye that they can just get away with it because these people don't matter. It's not until they stand up for themselves that they do. And I think that's, um, unfortunately something I wrestle with in terms of like day to day life. No, I, um, understand what you're saying. Like there are some crimes that are committed. We don't hear enough about, and then there are others depending on who it affects. Oh, it's all over the news but others get forgotten. And with children too, once you have a child, your perspective of the world changes. Like things that I would see, horrible things in the news, I'd be like, oh, that's terrible. But then once you have a child and kids are involved, you're like outraged. You, you go beyond just being disgusted. You're outraged. You're, you're scared. You're terrified. It, everything just, your whole perspective changes once you have that child to take care of and look out for. Absolutely. I'm amazed actually how often I just stop in the middle of the day and just watch him which sometimes is really lovely and just is full of pure joy of just like watching him operate through the most mundane tasks can be really charming and fun. But there's also moments where I stop and I watch him and something I've either heard on the news or a friend has mentioned to me just kind of pops in my head and I get, it, and it makes me more scared. It makes me more nervous for like what his life is going to be like. Yeah, for sure. Now, to entice new readers to jump on with issue five coming up August 15th, just share a bit of the background of some of the key players, Red, the Duchess, and Detective Frank Kofi, who they are, where they are in the story, when it picks up again in August. Sure. So the main character is Red, who is a 13-year-old girl who's basically orphaned. Her sister has been killed by these wolves, as has her mother, and she's been taken under the care of a woman called the Duchess. The Duchess calls herself that. She has taken over a train station, the Queen Victoria's train station that's been abandoned. And she's taken a bunch of wayward women or hunted women or women who have nowhere else to go in, kind of like a women's shelter, and has trained them how to defend themselves. And because they're all housed and protected by the Queen Victoria station, they take on this identity of Victoria's and they wear like a punk rock version of Victorian dress, kind of a little homage to Tank Girl in a way of this kind of like punk rock aesthetic mixed with something, you know, historical. And so the Duchess trains Red and it becomes very clear that Red is special, that she's really good at this, at hunting the coyotes and luring them into danger. And so Red becomes kind of the primary hero. And she comes into contact after one of her first missions with a police officer named Detective Coffee, 
who in my mind is kind of like a Frank Miller type detective, except for in this world, the Frank Miller detective is completely powerless. So it's a, it's a guy who kind of shows up and is like hard boiled and like, I'm going to solve the crime. I'm going to help out the women. I'm going to do everything right. And then he shows up and everyone's like, you can't help any of us. Like you have no power here. And so he's caught up trying to protect this girl, Red, who reminds him of his daughter. And so they form a tight bond. And by the end of the arc, they kind of help save each other to a degree. And then moving into the second arc, you have what happens after the fallout, after you fought what you thought was your greatest enemy. How do you go on from that? And in this world, especially, their greatest enemy are just men from the community who've been wearing these pelts. So there's a huge question of what does that community do? Like, do you kill all the people who perpetrated this crime? Can you even conceive of forgiveness? And that becomes a huge battling point, both philosophically as well as in the actual like action sequences of what to do. Like, how do you rebuild a society when it's been kind of torn apart ends up becoming like a really big theme. Now you draw from many different sources that have influenced you over the years to create the action in this series. And we're talking Cormac McCarthy, Quentin Tarantino, Akira Kurosawa. Of the aforementioned, what are some of the most impactful and influential works of those creators, directors for you? I mean, McCarthy, I really love The Desolation of the Road. I also really, really love Blood Meridian. You know, there's a sparseness to his language that always affects me. There's just such a simplicity that allows for it to be really cold, but honest at the same time. Like there's nothing in a Cormac McCarthy book that makes you feel really great. Like you're rarely, <laughs> you know, like, you're rarely like, oh, this has really cheered me up about the human condition. You know, you're usually just like, oh, I do sometimes think that the world is that awful. I think what I love about Kurosawa is, I mean, visually I love Kurosawa, but I also love like, there is such a definitive concept of honor in all of the movies. There is an idea of righteousness and sacrifice that I still find really interesting. It, it probably, weirdly, the, the samurai motif that he works within kind of dovetails with some of the biggest influences that like childhood Catholicism had on me of, you know, sacrificing yourself for the right thing, joining together in groups to try and do good, but also the conflict of what's seen as law and justice versus what's actually morally good. And then Tarantino, I don't know if people talk about it as much, but like there's just such a level of cartoon in his violence and work. It's why it's so entertaining. Like it's really funny, especially his earlier work. Um, that's where I'm more drawn in, like the Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. This hyper-violence that is so over the top that it's almost humorous when certain things happen, as well as the way in which the characters, it's such a piece of their day-to-day -day life that they kind of treat it the way that you would if you like worked cleaning pools for a living, you know, like making jokes with their coworker and having discussions about these odd, you know, these things that we would find normal, like a quarter pounder, but to these hitmen who've gone to France for the first time, it's like super fascinating. The Tarantino weirdly balances out the Cormac McCarthy for me. And then I feel like the Curacao is kind of that emotional, moral core, the center of the whole thing that kind of holds the book together. You have a relative newcomer to your comic doing the art, Caitlin Yarsky, and you discovered her on the internet. And you guys have a great working rapport. You exchange ideas before the art actually gets put down. And have you noticed, since the issue first began back in November to now, has her work evolved at all? Incredibly. <laughs> I mean, Caitlin was amazing to begin with. When I first saw her portfolio online, I was immediately just like, 
this person's incredibly good. I haven't seen art like this. I was in love with it from the get-go. But it is amazing to me as we go issue through issue, like looking at issue five, the amount that she's improved from issue one is kind of staggering. It's also just the thing where I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm like, wow, I'm not an artist. I can't draw anything. So I'm just kind of like, how much further can her work go is really intriguing to me. Because I'm like, if she gets much better than this, I don't, I don't know how comparable she's going to be to people. Like some of the stuff she's doing in issue five is unbelievable. And she's just like so obsessive and perfectionist in a way that I try to be with the text that I love. She's painting all of the covers for issue five through eight and then putting them in and she's doing everything by hand because she just would prefer to. So she just kind of is always stunning to me. And any day that I get art for a comic book I'm working on is automatically like Christmas. It's just always amazing to open up a PDF and be like, wow, this is what this all looks like. The degree of like, not only her characters, but her backgrounds have just gotten so stunning. It's weird to say that there's some drawings of trees and forests that she has done in issue five that are incredible, but there are. <laughs> like, it's not the type of thing where you're like, she does a really good tree, but you're like, oh, this is incredible looking. So yeah, I mean, the way she's leveling up with each issue is kind of stunning. Are there any intentional stylistic changes that are planned for the next arc? Like in some cases, creators change the way the book looks because it's going to take place at another time, another place. Do you have anything like that planned for this next arc? Yeah, I mean, color scheme, it's shifted a bit. You know, the first four issues were in a very arid desert locale. Um, what happens in the start of issue five is that Red and the women from the City of Lost Girls have renamed their village the City of Found Girls and are starting to travel by train around the outer parts of their world to get other women who may be in danger and bring them back. Um, and so when we first meet them, they're out in a place that looks a lot more like Vancouver, kind of like a, a Washington state, Vancouver, very, very green, very lush, you know, giant redwood type trees. Um, so visually it looks really different and the color schemes that Caitlin has been working with have been very different. And then in terms of the actual tone of the series, it shifts a good amount solely because the first four issues were very much about revenge, like a very Kill Bill aesthetic of our main character has lost something and is trying to right that wrong. And by the end of the fourth issue, she she's kind of come to that conclusion. With issue five, we actually start looking at the concepts of forgiveness and what do you do once you've achieve revenge? Do you stay on that path like someone like the Punisher or is there something or is there something else for you that you can try and achieve? And that's kind of a question that Red is confronted with. All right. Well, that's not all you're doing, though. You're a really busy guy besides wrapping up San Diego, moving several states. You have other books also in the works. Uh, you have one coming up. I understand you're collaborating with former collaborator Hayden Sherman, who worked on you with The Few. He's one of my favorites. He did uh, Cold War. I read that. John Carter, The End. Now you have a new sci-fi book coming up with him. Sure. So the first issue is done, and I think I have half of the second issue he sent me yesterday. <laughs> so good timing on that. That book is called Thumbs. It's a sci-fi book. It'll be coming out through Image Comics in the spring. Uh, it'll be another maxi series like The Few. So with The Few, every issue was about the size of a double issue. Thumbs will be the same thing. One thing Hayden and I have just really gelled on is how to play with pace in a comic book and what we can do in a longer format. We, I think we both really loved that in the few, that each episode could be like an hour-long drama that you watch on Netflix as opposed to a half hour. And 
what we could do with, you know, silence. Silence in comic books is something I'm really fascinated with. Like, even though it's a visual form, it's rare that comic books take any time to be a little bit quiet. And I think that there's some amazing opportunities for that. So that book is basically about, I got really affected by the Parkland shootings. And I started thinking, I remember watching some of the news conferences with the kids from Parkland. And I remember seeing a post from a friend on Facebook where they'd, they'd said something along the lines of like, don't worry, everyone, it's okay. The kids are going to save us. And I understood the concept of that, like how brave they were on television and how heartfelt I was for them. But I also, as a father to a young son, I got really scared by the sentiment of the sentence. I don't want my kid to have to save me. (laughs) I don't want him to have to solve a major problem within our country when he's 16. But then it did make me think like, what would happen if that is what the world started to do? If, If it really was that the adults started to become so incapacitated with technology and their own narcissism and careers and lives that it really came down to these kids who were like, we're the ones who are going to have to solve the problems in the world. You know, a lot of my books always combine a bunch of different influences. So it combines my obsession with that idea and also my own massive confliction with people like Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and these greater technologies that kind of mine lots of data and have an incredible amount of influence with no oversight. So you basically have a Mark Zuckerberg type character who is at odds with his own government, with his, with basically the the government. And so what he does quietly is he starts to make technology cheaply available to the poor as like a charitable act. But what you start to learn is that the video games and the drones and the things that he's giving to like these poor kids in trailer parks and lower income cities is kind of training them to be his own army. So yeah, it's another. <laughs> It's another really cheery, cheery book coming out for me. Um, though Hayden's work on it is it's incredible. Like the the first two issues that I've been looking at, I'm just like, this is going to be amazing. We're very excited for that. Okay, so that's next spring. I'm looking forward to that. Now, right now, you're working on Betrothed being published through Aftershock, and that's up to issue five. Kieran and Tamara must marry or fight to the death. Tell me about that series, which is going on right now. Well, I mean, it just concluded its miniseries. Aftershock and I had had interacted with each other and we talked about doing two books that would be like very loosely based on Shakespeare plays. Um, My background's in theater. Betrothed was like my take on Romeo and Juliet. And, you know, I have an uncle who owns a comic book store and we talk a lot about the median a lot. And one thing he has said is he's like, we don't have a lot of teenage readers, which is when I got into comics. And so I started thinking about like, oh, I'd like to try and make like a more YA book, like something that was a bit more humorous and had elements of like, you know, movies like Can't Hardly Wait or Never Been Kissed, you know, like these these teen comedies that I was in high school for or Breakfast Club even, but with a lot of action and the whole idea of the growth of a teenager into adulthood. And one of the things I started thinking about with that one is I was just like, you know, I remember thinking how every relationship I had in high school was the end of the world when it ended. You know, so I started thinking like, oh, what if that was the literal truth? Like, what if your breakup actually could end the world? That felt very high school themed. So, um, so yeah, I started doing that book um, with them, uh, I guess, in like April, April or May. And so, we, yeah, we wrapped the five-issue miniseries last month. And then I've been just working on another book with them called Clan Killers that just released last month. Fans of Game of Thrones would like that because you're dealing with something like that in Irish clans. That's the second one from Aftershock and has influences of King Lear in it. I, it would basically be like if Game of Thrones was written by Garth Ennis. 
and Garth Ennis at like his meanest. <laughs> it's a pretty dark book. The first issue, especially, just because uh, it, it's kind of building um, a really dark world. And it, it, basically, there's a king named Padraig the Grotesque who has three daughters that he makes state how much they love him, even though he's this horrible person. And his one daughter, Fanola, who's the youngest, basically is tired of this nonsense. And with her friend Cillian, she's like, I'm going to kill all the clans, including my father's clan, because none of them agree. And they're all stupid. As a teenage girl, I I'm just tired of living underneath this. And she kind of starts to go out and enact this plan. The final goal being that there's a, a goddess named Balor who kind of creates most of the chaos that these clans live within so that if she, if she can get rid of the clans, she can then have a final face off with this goddess. So again, it's a, it's very, it's very light themes, uh, and a very simplistic plot. <laughs> Sean, I don't know when you get any sleep writing all these books. <laughs> I mean, it's fun. It's, I mean, uh, I, I didn't ever conceive of the idea that I would get to write comic books. I grew up reading them. I love them. I had no idea how you got a job doing it. So I've been really lucky to have the opportunities that I have come through. So I'll, right now I'm just kind of saying yes when I get the chances to and it's, you know, it doesn't really feel like work because it's it is really enjoyable. It's just made me refocus, you know. I, I my career up until now has been doing theater basically um so it has meant that i've had to take a, a step back from doing and writing plays and and focus a bit more on the comic books but it's definitely been worth it i mean it's been the most fun that i think i've ever had did writing plays and working in theater help prepare you for writing comics did it come a little easier for you you think because you did have experience doing that i think in some ways yes maybe in other ways no i mean i still feel so young to writing comics and i have you know not that there's I guess, definitive training for comic book writing. I, I definitely know some guys who've seen Apprentice or have relationships with like established comic book writers and they kind of learn that way. The things it did teach me is like a strength with dialogue and character and at least a pretty ingrained understanding of a, of a three-act structure. I think there's marketplace things in comic books that I'm still learning. <laughs> I guess like the trajectory of every comic book I have almost is the same in terms of like how reviewers and audiences respond to it is the first issue usually comes out and people are like, it's really intriguing. A lot's going on. I understand some of it, but I have so many questions. I don't know if I'm going to stay with it. And the people who stay with it are always like, oh man, the second issue, all of those questions I had got answered. And the third, oh man, it progressed because I understand how to do that with plays. <laughs> like where I think there's some people who are amazing at writing like an amazing first issue where like everything is super, super clear. You know, all the main characters, exactly what they want and what they're fighting for at the end of those 20 pages. Sometimes what I find with those books though, is that by the time you get to issue five, the story's kind of run out of some steam. The world isn't really that big. And you're like, okay, so this is like the fifth issue in a row where they fought each other. And like, so that's less interesting. And for me, I think it ends up being that there's a little bit more of a slow burn to them, that by the time you get to the second or third issue, everything starts adding up in a greater whole. Because by the third issue, you're 60 pages into a comic book. Like 60, 60 pages of a play, you're hitting the end of act one. I still kind of think structurally in terms of how a play operates where it's like by the first 20 pages you're you're meeting everybody and there's like these are the three big questions that are brought up but they're probably not gonna all get answered until issue three although most might be in two sorry this is getting like really esoteric in terms of like how i'm approaching <laughs> it's 
that's all right. In some ways, it's it's made it easier. In some ways, not. I've definitely had to learn a lot more about just thinking visually. Where with plays, you don't really have to do that because the director is going to do that. Now you said you read comics as a teenager. What were you reading? And of those books that you read, which of those do you think really influenced the way you write now? I was really obsessed with Vertigo books back then. I read a lot of Preacher. I read a lot of Sandman. I read a lot of Swamp Thing. At the same time, I loved those books and I loved Chris Claremont's endless run on the X-Men. So basically, if I went to the comic book shop, I'd probably buy like X-Men, Sandman, Swamp Thing, Preacher. That'd be a pretty good haul for me coming home. Like from the X-Men, I've always really loved conflicted superheroes. Even when they were saving everything, they felt like outcasts. They could never get fully accepted by the world around them. That made a lot of sense to me and I think is still a big part of the characters I write, that they're always kind of concerned of if they're doing the right thing. The big mythology of Sandman, I always loved myths and the hugeness of that. The general experimentation and just kind of like anything goes of like Alan Moore Swamp Thing. Like I've been rereading some of Alan Moore Swamp Thing and I'm like, this book's insane. Like there's certain pages and panels that I'm like, I'm so intrigued and I have no idea what the hell is happening. Or it's one of those things where I'm like, I know it's happening, but it's being done in such a crazy way. And there's something about that that I'll always really love. I think Garth Ennis and Preacher especially were like, like that's the first book where I read that there was like the levels of permission being taken I'd never seen before. It's like when you're a kid and like you go to a movie, like an R-rated movie for the first time and they curse for the first moment and you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah. I still remember being stunned by that and it becomes like a secret for you of like, oh, this movie, I'm not going to let my mom know about it, but I love that movie and the curse. Like I feel like Garth Ennis was like that when I read Preacher is, is I think as I had gone to lots of Catholic school and so like there was so much sacrilegious about it and the cursing and everything else that he puts in a book that I was like, it's weird. I know all the things he's talking about. I understand all of them, but he's doing it in a way that feels adult and dangerous. That plays on me at times too, is those kind of like subsets, those kind of secret worlds that you can get into that are really fascinating. Well, those are some great books to grow up reading. Are there any on your bucket list that you didn't get a chance to read as a teen that you hope to someday get around to reading? Libraries have gotten way hipper. So like I'm constantly in libraries going through their graphic novel sections and I'm amazed at what they have. You know, I had also gone away from comics for a, a while during college and I came back right around like Essex County and Jeff Lemire's start and I got really obsessed with him. So there's books in between like I've been reading a lot of DMZ and I've been going back and reading like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and From Hell, like the graphic novels and I knew the movies and then now reading the graphic novels, I'm like, oh, I see why Alan Moore like really hated these movies. <laughs> Those books I've been going back and trying to read. I've also been going and reading like a bunch of old Daredevil books. And some of them are like incredible and weird. Like there's a bunch of these like one shots from like the late 80s, early 90s. I've been finding like back issues of at comic book shops where like Daredevil is not even in costume. He's on a motorcycle. He rides to some small town with like a backward sheriff. He befriends like a single mom, something bad happens, and then he like burns the entire town down. And that's it. There's no arc. It's just a single issue. And I'm like, wow, this was like an amazing, intense, little gritty movie that I just read. And then the next issue, it's like none of it happened. And he's fighting bullseye. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> this is kind of fascinating. In a weird way, I kind of I miss that freedom in comics. Like it's it is so 
definitively arc based that there's actually something magic about these little like one-off issues that i forgot about it's the same with x-men i was reading a x-men issue when i was at my parents house during the move that i hadn't read in years and it's like it's right after secret wars and colossus basically comes back and lets kitty pride know that he no longer loves her so wolverine is just like pissed off and is like i'm gonna take him out to a bar and i'm gonna beat him up and they go to the bar, they see Juggernaut there out of costume, and Colossus and Juggernaut just get into this huge fist fight where they destroy this bar. And it has nothing to do with Secret Wars. The next couple of issues after don't have anything to do about it. It's just like this one character issue about like Peter screwed up and he has to pay a price for breaking Kitty's heart. And this is the price that he pays. And I'm just like, I don't know, I was reading and I kind of fell in love with it in a moment where I was like, it's just amazing with these books, like when you have that kind of fan base that there's these moments that they were able to take where like they're just going to deal with the characters for just an issue. It felt like real life, even though like the guy's metal and another one has like blades coming out of his hands. It's just, I, there's something in that storytelling that I just really loved. Well, people can relate to it. You know, it has to do with relationships. The powers are just peripheral at that point. It's really the emotions and the connections there that people really identify with. Absolutely. And, I, and it's just so grounded in a way that it reminds me how nice it is to just see the characters be human. Like it's really easy as you're writing them to get really caught up in the myth of it, of keeping them always elevated, you know, and, and the metaphors that they kind of exist as, um, where sometimes it's, it's just so powerful to be like, oh, they're no longer a metaphor. They're now like me. <laughs> they're, they're as confused and screwed up as I am today, that it's kind of lovely. Well, now I have questions for you that I ask all my guests just to learn more about you as a creator, as an individual. You're a very busy guy, and I'm sure you're really tired now with everything that's been going on. What do you like to do for rest and relaxation? I mean, I'm like everybody else. I watch a lot of Netflix. I, <laughs> I read a lot of comic books. I try to exercise. As I get older, that seems like a failing endeavor. Uh, <laughs> it takes more I, energy to do it. <laughs> yeah. I spend lots of time looking up food and recipes that I should cook and should eat, but rarely do. And I weirdly find that like relaxing. But I mean, mainly it's, it's a lot of reading. I go on hikes a lot and I run a bit and then just kind of watching TV. I mean, the big thing now is I, I did not expect to have a, a child. And it's been the greatest thing. Like, so I, honestly, most of my free time is spent just running around the house playing with him. There's, I will say, like, when you've had an atrociously bad day, running around the house chasing each other with, like, swimming pool noodles is incredibly <laughs> relaxing. You're, like, nothing seems to matter, which is kind of dumbfounding to me. It's great. They're like your biggest fan when you come home. It is amazing. I mean, I do also love just hearing throughout the house, like, where's dad? Where's dad? <laughs> right. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, it's great. It makes your day. It is amazing. I'm a little terrified about when that starts to go away but because it's so nice, but it's kind of incredible right now. Well, you know, it goes away because I have um, an older daughter. She's like 20. Oh, gosh, she's going to beat me up because I always <laughs> get her age wrong. 24? <laughs> She'll <laughs> let me know. Um, and it goes away after a while. You know, they're not like, oh, daddy, daddy. But then they come back, you know, and it's a different relationship then. It's it's a little more like, hey, how's it going? You can sit down and talk and have a cup of coffee or something. It's It comes back around. That seems so trippy to me, the idea that at some point I will be sitting at the table and this little boy is going to be in his 20s. I don't know. I, I kind of wrap my head around like having like these, you know, much more adult or expansive conversations with him as a person. And it, I, I don't know. It just it seems unreal. <laughs> yeah, it's still hard for me to see the boys older right now. Um, I have one that's going to be seven 
at the end of this month. So he's already starting to think bigger and ask a lot more philosophical questions. Of course, being seven, he'll just shift gears and talk about something ridiculously and off the wall. So it's it's kind of a it kind of appears every once in a while and then it just kind of goes away. Right. <laughs> now, thinking back in your life, and it could be even more recent, is there a birthday that stands out to you? And what was so special and memorable about that birthday? Honestly, this is such a sad thing. Most of my, a lot of the birthdays I've had were disappointing as a kid. For whatever reasons, my parents were divorced and there was always a little bit of, I think, longing on birthdays for both of them. So I, I think my childhood memories of them are not so fantastic. Since adulthood, like high school through college, they've been much better. I think, I mean, the most recent one, my wife took me to a Nils Fromm concert that I was not expecting to go to. That was a complete surprise. And I usually hate surprises. And that one was awesome if only because my wife knows I hate surprises, but somehow knew that I would like this one. <laughs> it's the type of thing where I was like, this would normally blow up and not be a good thing. And instead this was like an incredible, which the fact that you were able to discern that is impressive. Thinking back to when you were 12, 14, somewhere in there, what kind of posters or pictures did you have on the bedroom wall? And what kind of music were you listening to at the time? I had an insane amount of John Elway posters all over the wall. I have always grown up as a huge, huge Denver Bronco fan. And then I also had a lot of pro wrestling posters on my walls. Classic WWF. A lot of like, well, I guess they were not the Midnight Rockers because that would have been AWA. But Shawn Michaels, Marty Jannetty, a lot of Ultimate Warrior. Uh, and music-wise, I was definitely listening to either heavy metal or hardcore hip-hop. 12, probably a lot of hip-hop. That would have been, like, the explosion of, like, NWA and Onyx and Ice-T. So, yeah, that would be what would be driving my parents insane. Hypothetical question. If you were stuck on a deserted island, what book or books, and we'll just say one book, what is the one book you'd want to have with you to read for pleasure. We're not talking about survival. You're going to be fine. You're going to get off there eventually, but what is the one book you'd want to have? With these, I try and think of like the first thing that comes to my mind because you want to say something that's cool or intelligent, or at least I'm like, oh, I should say something really cool or super intelligent. Like what's the most like literary book I can think of? And instead, the first thing that popped in my mind is The Dirt, which is the oral history of Motley Crue. Um, <laughs> okay. Which my wife makes fun of me because I've read a lot I'm actually not a fan of their music at all. Like, I don't like Motley Crue, but I had a friend who was like, you have to read this. And it's just like the stories of their lives are just like so absurd and so insane dealing with like when they were worshiping witches to like just the gross excesses in the, you know, inside the studios to having fist fights in their 40s that like, I don't know, that book I go back to and it's just such a, it's such a guilty, a huge guilty pleasure that I'm like, yeah, if I was on an island, I probably would read that a bunch of times where I'm like, I think if I brought For Whom the Bell Tolls, I would read it once and be like, I wish I had another book. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, And I love that book too, but I'm like, I feel like I wouldn't read it 15 times where I'm like, ah, I'll read about Tommy Lee today is actually very probable. Now, another hypothetical, if a toy company were to make an action figure of you, what would be your accessory or accessories? <laughs> I mean, if it was based on real life, I probably would just have a MacBook connected to my arm. But um, if it was a superhero version of myself, I don't know. I'll combine the two. I think I would have a ton of like old school X-Force, like Rob Liefeld patches across my, you know, the, the accessory utility belts on mm -hmm. the arm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it would just be filled with like USB 
you know, cards <laughs> and flash drives that I think I would, and then I would have the laptop connected to me. I would look like cable, but as if cable was going to actually install your cable in some way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> now, when you're relaxing, what is your beverage of choice? Honestly, probably like iced tea. I mean, if we're going into alcohol, I probably might have a, a whiskey and Coke. Final question. What is the one question you have not been asked in an interview that you would like someone to ask, something people don't know about you that you want them to know? I don't know. I'm probably more thankful I don't get asked those questions <laughs> and then concerned about it. I don't know. I think, you know, the one thing I don't get as much of an opportunity to do is kind of talk about how appreciative I am to both my wife and my son and my family. You know, when you were working in the arts, it's a weird job and it's not just you that has to constantly take leaps of faith. And I don't think we talk about that enough as creators. Like, I think on Twitter and other websites like that, you can get a lot of creators talking about, like, I'm just so lucky to have this opportunity or it's scary. I'm going to have to take a big leap. If those people have, are partnered in any other, in any way or have anyone that cares about them, every time you're taking one of those leaps, you kind of have like a group of people that are tied to you that are like, yeah, I'll jump off that cliff too, which is kind of amazing and terrifying at the same time. So I feel like that's something, you know, as you're talking about like, yeah, I got to make this book, but I'm like, I only got to make this book because of like my wife taking my son during nap time and making sure that it was quiet for two hours or, <laughs> right. you know what I mean? Like it wouldn't have not have been possible if those things hadn't happened. I understand. Yeah. This podcast would not be possible <laughs> if my, my wife did keep an eye on the kids. Yeah. The reality. Yeah. Now, are there any con appearances that you have planned for the remainder of the year? I'll be at New York Comic Con, definitely. Uh, and I think now that I'm back east, there's just so many cons on the east coast that I'm going to probably start reaching out and trying to build a bit more of a con schedule. I haven't been as good at that. I, I had never gone to cons before, and then New York and San Diego were my first two, and I think they made me a little gun-shy for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> They're just a lot. I mean, they're great, but like it's kind of overwhelming. I've started going to some smaller cons, and I've actually really enjoyed those because it's nice when those to be able to have more time with the fans and on a different level. I think sometimes at New York and San Diego, everything's so regimented, and there's so much going on that's just a bit of sensory overload, so it's hard to really focus. For someone like me, I've, crowds can kind of freak me out. I have some anxiety about them at times, so like it can kind of be a little bit of a challenge. So like in the smaller cons, I actually love being able to have like just one-on-one -on -one time with people and talk about like what they're, even outside of my own books, but like what are they reading or what are they interested in? It's one of the nice things about that community. Absolutely. Yeah, I love the smaller cons. Well, Sean, we have Cody's returning on August 15th with issue number five, and we'll be looking for that through Image Comics. And thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. Okay, coming up next week, I have not one, but three interviews, but there'll be two podcasts. First up, Bernie Gonzalez. He has a new book coming out, Midnight Mysteries, which is available for pre-order through this month's Diamond Catalog. It is being made available in print for the first time through Alterna Comics, but that is not where the series began. Oh no, he's been working on that for a while and has several stories already in the can, and we're going to talk about that. It is a noir horror series that is a tip of the chapeau to Kolchak, the Night Stalker, the series that ran on CBS between 1974 and 1975 for one season only, but what a season it was and what an impact it had on future producers of sci-fi TV series and paving the way for shows like The X-Files. 
Well, we are both big fans of that series and talk about it and his other influences, other horror films, and also other horror TV hosts that influenced the series. And how did Bernie go from being a casual comic reader to a dedicated comic reader to a comic creator himself? Then, my next interview, which will be out next Thursday, will be returning guest Cullen Bunn and new guest Mark Torres, his collaborator on Cold Spots, published through Image Comics. And I'm going to round out that episode with David Lee of Webtoons. He's going to talk about the company's contest, Discover Creator Contest, which ends September 13th. So if you're an aspiring writer or artist, this is for you. So stay tuned for those next week. But until such time... You can follow me on the show's Facebook page at Creator Talks Pod and through Twitter at Creator Talks Pod. Please rate and review the show on iTunes. Even just a star rating goes a long way to helping the show reach a wider audience. And tell a friend about the show. This has been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.